Welcome to Bad Table Talk. I'm your host, Oliver Niehaus, and this is where we break down all of the current news and talk about everything you aren't supposed to talk about at the dinner table, that being politics, religion, money, and more. My goal with this series is to provide easy-to-listen, informative segments addressing the most pressing issues we face and to pretend like I know what I'm talking about. As always, thanks go out to my friend Oscar Gregg for providing the music you hear, and you should all check out his single, Acrobats, which will be linked in the podcast notes below. If you enjoy what you hear, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave a rating and review. And feel free to also share your thoughts with me via email, which is linked below as well. So sit back and relax while I talk about how utterly fucked we are as a country. I'm totally kidding. Sort of. All joking aside, regardless of where you stand politically, I hope everyone is motivated by what they hear to research more about these issues and feels ready to contribute to making our nation a better place for everyone. Thank you and please enjoy. Hello everyone, welcome to Bad Table Talk. I'm your host, Oliver Niehaus, and it seems like I start off way too many of my segments with this uh, cliché. Um, each passing day seems to give it more validity, though, so um, the phrase I have said too many times is that we are living through unprecedented times, and this is true, despite it being almost cliche. I mean, the president of the United States literally just said that he will not commit to accepting the results of this election, as surprising as that is. I mean, I've just been thinking, and this is seems to be something we hear about that happens in other countries, but not really something we ever consider that would happen in, in our own country. I mean, we hear other countries that have, you know, rampant disease, um, incredibly high unemployment, um, leaders refusing to give up power. And then I think we end up intervening in the name of so-called democracy, or in other words, propping up whichever leader we think will best serve our interests. But regardless, um, someone needs to do that for us. <laughs> so if any of you have family members living abroad or just happen to be friends with world leaders, give them a call and say we need them to return the favor. <laughs> So, in the midst of all this chaos, um, there was the uh, recent unfortunate passing of uh, Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Uh, I made a previous podcast on that and some of the implications with the previous information that we had, but a little bit more information has come out, so that's why I'm updating you guys with a little more information. But um, I would really encourage all of you to take some time to really look into a lot of the things that Ruth Bader Ginsburg did with her life um, on the Supreme Court and even before as a lawyer fighting for um, equal rights among men and women and everyone. So um, especially if you're a woman in this country, um, many rights that you have, Ruth Bader Ginsburg fought very hard to protect. So um, your right to attend public university. Um, there was a 1996 case. It was the United States versus Virginia. And basically, um, it, it declared it unconstitutional for taxpayer-funded uh, public universities to discriminate against women. So you're right. If you currently go to a public university in this country or plan on doing that in the future, that is largely attributed to Ruth Bader Ginsburg and her ruling within that case to ensure that that would be protected, that you'd be able to do that, um, as well as you being able to sign a mortgage for a house without a co-signature being a male counterpart. Um, this came with the Equal Credit Opportunity Act in 1974, which um, allowed women to obviously get mortgages without a male counterpart, which is very, very crucial to equality. So that is very important, as well as she increased access to equal pay. This is obviously still an ongoing battle, but um, definitely many cases that she um, took up. There were many cases that came before the Supreme Court that were unfortunately um, ruled against um, expanding access to equal pay in the workplace for women, but she wrote some very impactful dissents to those decisions. Um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg is very um, 
very commonly known and well-known for her dissents and her powerful words that ended up influencing court decisions and um, just, you know, society as a whole in general. So that was uh, very important as that struggle continues on. Um, she also preserved a woman's right to choose, which obviously is currently under threat, as, as we'll talk about. So that is very important, um, a woman's right to um, control her own bodily processes and, you know, decide those very personal decisions, or it can be attributed largely to Ruth Bader Ginsburg, um, as well as the right to not be fired from your job because you're pregnant. Many employers would literally just fire women because they were pregnant, and that sometimes would inhibit their ability to do their job. So clearly that is not um, protecting women, um, equal protection. So she fought to ensure that that would not be the case, as well as a woman's ability to um, serve on a jury, which is another big thing that um, incorporates equal rights. So if you're considering any of those um, things, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was very crucial in that. So I'd suggest just, you know, uh, as her unfortunate passing, you just take a look back at her incredible career and her ability to uh, consistently fight for what is right. So um, beyond that, uh, we get into the unfortunate part is uh, Donald Trump and Mitch McConnell have definitely acted quickly to try and fill that uh, seat that has been left vacant with just over a month um, until Election Day. And we'll talk about that a little bit. And Trump's uh, presumptive nominee to the Supreme Court is Amy Coney Barrett. So uh, she is a previous Trump appointee to the United States Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals. Um, Trump appointed her. I don't know about you. Uh, I usually prefer having Supreme Court justices who don't advocate against the separation of church and state and then say that one's personal religious beliefs should take precedent over upholding the rule of law. But maybe that's just me. Yes, you heard that right. Those are both things that Amy Coney Barrett, Trump's presumptive nominee, has said or at least alluded to. I mean, in a 1998 publication co-authored by Barrett, which is called Catholic Judges in Capital Cases, Barrett literally stated that one's religious beliefs should take precedent over legal proceedings. And she said this by saying that she believes that in cases where the law conflicts with one's religious beliefs, one should recuse themselves. Now, while this is definitely undeniably better than having them rule based off teachings of the Bible, but in a court of law, the Constitution takes precedent. Not only do religious beliefs certainly not take precedent over the law, they, they indeed take a back seat, like the back seat of an entire school bus. Justices aren't confirmed to the court just to cower every time the rights, the human rights, of certain groups of people are in conflict with their morals. Because after all, in practice, religion is but a mere set of moral principles one chooses to live by. So in that vein, let's consider some of Barrett's positions on many different topics. Um... In 2015, she signed a letter to Catholic bishops that endorsed many of the church's conservative teachings on abortion and sexuality. Um, the words of one of her letters reads that we give witness that the church's teachings on the dignity of the human person and the value of human life from conception to natural death on the meaning of human sexuality, the significance of sexual difference and the complementarity of men and women on openness to life and the gift of motherhood and on marriage and family founded on the indissoluble commitment of a man and a woman, provide a sure guide to the Christian life, promote women's flourishing, and serve to protect the poor and most uh, vulnerable among us. This is a little bit ironic when she talks about protecting the poor and most vulnerable, considering that she has also um, upheld certain laws that, one, disproportionately affect immigrants and do not allow um, those who are currently taking advantage of welfare and other benefits to 
claims citizenship, which is very discriminatory and is not protecting the poor and most vulnerable, as well as she's trying to repeal Obamacare. And yes, if you've listened to my other podcast series called Actually Making America Great, I will always plug that because I really enjoyed making that series and you should all check it out. But in that series, I do heavily criticize Obamacare. The issue is there's no replacement. It's not like we're going to universal health care if Obamacare is repealed. There's no way. So yes, Obamacare is better than nothing or not having Obamacare and just literally having free market health care. But she's trying to repeal that, which would not protect the poor and most vulnerable. So moving on from there, I mean, due, due to that paragraph right there, there's clearly no doubt that she opposes abortion, at least personally, as well as same-sex marriage. It also strongly alludes to opposing many other protections for LGBTQ citizens. So it is indeed true that not all of these may find their way into the courtroom. It is very it is common for many um, justices to have personal beliefs that do not transfer to the courtroom. For example, Justice William Brennan, who was crucial in the original landmark Supreme Court case Roe versus Wade, which legalized abortion, stated actually that he wouldn't under any circumstance condone an abortion in, in my private life or that's what he said. So he would not condone an abortion. However, he voted or at least ruled to allow that to happen. However, this may not be the case with Barrett because due to her record, we see that she is indeed, uh, it is indeed, although her record is indeed limiting, considering she's only been a judge for three years, it's clear that her rulings often align very strongly with her conservative religious beliefs, which also happen to lend themselves into very contradictory statements in many cases, because she said there was no question that she views abortion as immoral, but she did state that Roe held a strong precedent and that she doesn't believe it will be overturned. However, she also stated that precedent isn't the main determinant factor when considering many rulings, and that she will rule based off of what she thinks is the best decision. So it's very unclear where she will fall when it comes to abortion. Um, there's many reasons why this Supreme Court nomination is so crucial, especially before an election. So what necessarily would be the significance of a 6-3 conservative majority before the election? Well, we can look at, this, at um, precedent and see that the Supreme Court has a large influence on presidential elections, is, as even if it doesn't seem that way. Um, the easiest way to look at this is the 2000 election. This was a contentious race in Florida. Well, I mean, it was all over the nation, but it came down to the state of Florida. This was Al Gore versus George Bush. And questions surrounding the voter count were, were, were brought up. And the, and the state of Florida, or Al Gore, requested a recount. However, after, I think, a, a recount, but it was there were many different complications, the Supreme Court blocked a recount from happening, and Bush was declared president. So in a similarly contentious race, well, I mean, not really, because if you want my honest prediction, I don't think there's a chance in hell Donald Trump and the Republicans will allow for a fair election. But with a 6-3 a conservative majority on the court, this would increase the likelihood that a recount could be struck down, just like what happened in 2000. So how have Democrats responded to necessarily this nomination about a month before the election? Well, Multiple ways have been tried to indeed block um, the nomination from going through. One of the ways was one of the ways that was proposed was to draft new articles of impeachment against Donald Trump, which would force the Senate into an impeachment trial, which would delay the confirmation hearings until after the election. This was definitely scrutinized by Republicans as a constitutional crisis, and Democrats were clearly abusing their power. Ah, yes, of course, the same Republicans who blocked all witnesses, documents, and evidence from being heard in the original impeachment trial, as well as stonewalled Obama's nominee for Supreme Court, and have ignored the hundreds of House bills currently awaiting a Senate hearing, including those addressing very urgent issues like gun control, health care, and climate change, just to name a few. 
I mean, the, the Senate itself is meant to consider House-passed bills, I mean, just with simple care and deliberation, but not to simply ignore critical legislation because it was passed by a Democratic majority. So Democrats are simply just playing by the rules Republicans have been playing by for years. And let's be completely honest, the amount of articles of impeachment that could be drafted against Trump, rightfully so, is almost pitiful at this point. From countless violations of the Emoluments Clause ever since he took office, to the 10 separate accounts of obstruction that were found in the Mueller report, to violating the Logan Act by sending Rudy Giuliani, Trump's personal lawyer who is a private citizen to negotiate government dealings, to violating the Hatch Act recently by using the White House, which is government property funded by taxpayers, to host an undoubtedly partisan event being the Republican National Convention. That's only a few and many others for which he could be impeached. Republicans are just merely mad the Democrats aren't continuing to play by the rules the ones themselves haven't adhered to in basically years. I mean, however, this doesn't seem to be the path Democrats seem to be taking. I mean, another proposal was to add more justices to the Supreme Court. This would definitely dilute the presence of the conservative majority and lessen the possibility of landmark cases possibly being overturned. Many of many of people also view this as overtly political, but I mean, guess what? Republicans made it political by stonewalling Obama's nominee for nearly 300 days. The court was made partisan by Republicans, and to criticize Democrats for playing their game is absurd. Plus, nowhere in the Constitution does it state that there needs to be, or there, there, there has to be, nine justices. That number in itself has fluctuated over the years. Since 1789, Congress changed the maximum number of justices on the court several times. In 1801, President John Adams, a lame duck Federalist of Congress, passed the Judiciary Act of 1801, which reduced the court from its original six justices to five justices in, in an attempt to limit incoming President Thomas Jefferson's appointment to the high bench. And Jefferson and his Republicans soon repealed that act, putting the court back to six justices. And in 1807, Jefferson and Congress added a seventh justice when it added a seventh federal circuit court. And it didn't stop here. In early 1837, President Andrew Jackson was able to add two additional justices after Congress again expanded the number of federal circuit court districts. Under different circumstances, I mean, Congress created a tenth circuit court in 1863 during the Civil War. So there was actually a briefly, there briefly was a 10th Supreme Court justice, the most that there's been in a while. And however, Congress, after the war, passed legislation in 1886 to reduce it back to seven. But that only lasted until 1869, when a new Judiciary Act sponsored by Senator uh, Lyman Trumbull set the number back to nine justices, with six justices required sitting to form a quorum. I mean, President Ulysses S. Grant eventually signed that legislation and nominated William Strong and Joseph Bradley to the newly restored seats. I mean, since then, aside from President Franklin Roosevelt's ill-fated threat to support an effort to add new justices to the Supreme Court, the number of justices has remained stable at nine. In 1937, Roosevelt won a second, second term in office, but the makeup of a conservative-leaning Supreme Court hasn't changed since he took office four years earlier. Roosevelt supported a Judicial Procedures Reform Bill of 1937, as many to add six new justices. So, in summary, if we look at this, the number of justices has gone from six to five to six again, then to seven, then to nine, to ten, and then finally back to nine. So don't try to tell me that the number of justices is set in stone when it's changed seven different times. And the politicization of this is undeniable, but the Supreme Court's impartiality died when Garland was stonewalled by Republicans for purely political reasons. However, that doesn't seem to be the plan they're considering either. 
Instead, they have introduced a bill into Congress that would place 18-year term limits on Supreme Court justices. This is indeed unprecedented, but as I said before, we are living in unprecedented times. Maybe it's time for Democrats to break precedent. This is in part due to increased life expectancies leading to justices serving longer terms, which on average are longer than 25 years. Donald Trump has said he supports term limits on members of Congress, which is actually one of the very few places I agree with him on. Establishment politicians tend to be very inefficient and unproductive. They, always, they almost always get deeper and deeper into the entrenchment of corporate dollars and special interests. So, I mean, why shouldn't we hold them to the same standard to those who interpret the laws? Why shouldn't we hold that same standard to those who interpret the laws, not just those who make them? A lot can change in 25 years, plus years, a justice may serve. In many ways, the Supreme Court justices are more influential than the president himself. And to think to give the president a lifetime appointment is just simply unthinkable. So, overall, I'm curious to see how this plays out. As I said, I don't think there's a chance in hell Trump is ousted and is uh, removed from office, but if you disagree with that or anything else I mentioned, feel free to contact me via email with comments, concerns, or, well, if you just want to talk about Star Wars, because I love Star Wars. Star Wars is great, and if you don't like it, then you should just dye your hair green like Gamora from Guardians of the Galaxy, because that is a great movie that you should all watch. Alright, anyway, just wanted to spice this outro up a little and talk about something that isn't so mildly depressing, to say the least. So, thank you so much for listening. More of these should be in your feed soon, as I'll be recapping the first presidential debate that will take place Tuesday night. Oh boy, this is going to be interesting. So, that's about it. You've been listening to Bad Table Talk. Please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, but also please share this with others if you enjoyed listening. So, that's about it. Oliver, out.